From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why banks are stepping up on renewables financing, a conversation with the U.S. Green Building Council's new CEO, creating waste-free conferences, and are we headed for an energy Trumpocalypse? Oil's well that ends well, this week on 350. It's February 10th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me, as always, senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How are you? Good. I know your connection's a little bit funky today because you've had we've had storms here in California and your Wi-Fi is down and we're doing some alternative recording uh, configuration here. So uh, it's 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 good enough for uh, podcasts, uh, not optimal. But um, anyway, that's yes. that, that's. Um- Guerrilla podcasting. That's the weekend review. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's been. It's uh, continues to be uh, curiouser and curiouser. Uh, the weather, the politics, um, just uh, a little bit of everything. And um, I don't know. What do you What are you thinking? Uh, how, you know, people ask me all the time. You know, what do you think about what's going on? What What do you tell people? Uh, I, I guess at this, it depends who I'm talking to, first of all. But I think this week we were just talking before we went on air about how we it sort of seems we've reached a fork in the road. On one hand, you've got reports being like, oh, we're on the inexorable march of renewables. Let's keep a very optimistic outlook. Other people like David Crane <laughs> maybe getting a little more apocalyptic. Um, so obviously, I think the key is, is finding a mix of, of who you're listening to and, and all of that. Yeah, I'm, you know... Uh... I'm finding my own way of talking about, you know, how I feel about things. And you want to hear my answer when people say, what do you think about Trump? What do you think about politics? What do you think about what's going on in America? Here's my answer. You ready? I'm curious. Yes. (laughs) I say, well, I have four different answers. Um, As an environmentalist, I'm scared and horrified. As an American, I'm kind of ashamed and also sort of horrified. As a journalist, I'm fascinated with how all this is playing out. And as an entrepreneur for a sustainable business company, I'm kind of excited. Uh, it's an exciting time for us. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about this next week at our GreenBiz conference uh, in terms of how what the opportunity is for companies, for people in this field, in clean technology. Um, it's kind of uh, energizing in a certain sort of way. Well, I'm glad somebody's keeping things in perspective, but let's go ahead and jump right into the week in review. So lots to talk about this week before we get into a few of the stories I wanna particularly give a plug to uh, our good friend and editor-at-large, Bob Langert, ex-sustainability exec at McDonald's. Uh, He's back. He took a few months off over the last part of 2016. He's working on a book, which I can't wait to see. 
Um, but he's uh, come back with his with his new regular column, kind of a different format. It's called Ten Minutes with, and this first one is with Ten Minutes with Dave Stangus, who is just one of the veteran uh, sustainability people out there. Uh, he's been in tech. He's been in food. He's at Campbell's Soup Company now, and um, just one of the great voices out there. And over the coming months, Bob is going to sort of do these ten minutes with a wide range of sustainability executives, and I, I look forward to reading about those. Uh, they're they're fun. They're they're pithy. They're also pretty insightful. So thank you, Bob, for. Welcome back, and um, looking forward to reading more of what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. Good stuff. And while we're on the topic of interviews, Joel, I heard you had a few minutes in the last week to, to catch up with an interesting character. Yes, I went to an event this week at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco this week was uh, Clean Tech Week, uh, the Clean Tech Open, and a number of events celebrating clean tech. Frankly, that name, that term clean tech is a little old school from what I what I see. I think it's you know, really no such thing anymore as clean tech. It's just kind of tech. But, you know, that it's out there and they're still pushing uh, the technologies and the companies, the startups, of which there continue to be quite a number. And there's one part of this event, there was a great conversation, part of the Climate One series at the Commonwealth Club with Danny Kennedy, who's the uh, founder of Sungevity, but more recently the director of the California Clean Energy Fund, Andrew Chung, who uh, former Vinod Kosla uh, venture capitalist firm now has his own firm called 1955 uh, Capital. Uh, and Holmes Hummel. Holmes is a really a terrific uh, voice in all of this. Um, not heard from as much, and I hope to, that we're going to help change that. Um, former Obama administration energy official who has a nonprofit called Clean Energy Works that advocates for something called Pay As You Save or PAYS, P-A-Y-S, um, which is a really fascinating scheme for, for energy inclusion and financial inclusion um, that is bringing renewable energy and energy efficiency to residence, residences, get this, in Kentucky, Kansas, and Arkansas. Talk about broadening the footprint. Exactly. I mean, this is uh, a really, I, I love this because it's really um, bringing efficiency and renewables to places where that certainly hasn't been part of the political conversation, but people start to get it when they see that energy efficiency and renewable energy saves you money. And so Holmes, first of all, is going to be speaking at, at our Verge event uh, this fall, and I think also at the Verge Hawaii event in the summer pretty sure that's uh, confirmed now. Um, and I pull her aside for just three or four minutes just to ask her to give us a little bit about pay as you save. Tell us what pays is and um, talk a little bit about the potential. Here's what she had to say. So Holmes, first of all, what is pays? Pay as you save is a system for utilities to invest in anything that's cost effective on the customer side of the meter and recover those costs through a tariff that allows the utility to put a charge on the bill that's less than the estimated savings. This investment doesn't impose a loan, a lien obligation, or a long-term lease on the customer. So everyone can participate, regardless of their income, the credit score, or their renter status. So I, as a consumer, get to get efficiency, appliances, light bulbs, maybe solar energy, or some other kinds of things for less than I'm paying now per month for energy? 
It's designed to make sure the utility can invest in anything that's cost effective, including a net savings assurance of 20% of those estimated savings. So it's a really strict definition of cost effectiveness that's part of the consumer protection in the tariff. So this isn't just theoretical, this is already being done, and I think in some unlikely places. Could you believe Kansas, Kentucky, Arkansas, North Carolina, New Hampshire? I'm amazed at the number of utilities that have found a convergent self-interest in investing in cost-effective distributed energy solutions and the consumers that have responded with a demand that has lit up their local economies. So these are, I have to say, are I think all red states or you're close to it. So how did that happen? This is not where you typically think of as sort of the progressive energy, let alone revolutionary kinds of jurisdictions. You know, inclusive financing is most compelling in the parts of the United States that experience persistent poverty, where you could drive for an hour in any direction and not find yourself outside of a landscape of real economic distress. Those are the landscapes where inclusive financing have been picked up first, and the leaders from those frontline communities, I think, deserve recognition at the national level. So what's exciting about this in talking with you, as we have been for the last while, about this idea is how this scales. And, and you were talking about the idea of buses being sort of the gateway to, frankly, an energy revolution. One of the things that happened in 2016 was that public transit buses that are powered with electricity became cost competitive with diesel fuel buses on a life cycle basis. So a utility can actually finance the upgrade of the diesel buses in the transit system to electric, save the transit company money, sell more electricity, and remove the most hazardous part of the air pollution profile in any urban city. It's a win, 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 win. Wow, it sounds almost too good to be true. So what's keeping this from just happening everywhere? You know, it's all emerging and evolving very rapidly. I would say that deals are coming together as fast at the, as the pace of education and the decision chains that are required between stakeholders, vendors, utilities, and their regulators. I'm pretty encouraged by the number of states where I know those conversations are going on. 2017 which should prove to be an exciting year. Great. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes. Holmes Hummel from Clean Energy Works. Thank you so much, Joel. Fascinating stuff. We've got more coming up later in the show on renewable energy and finance. But for now, let's get back into the the political landscape. We were talking about it a little bit in the intro, but we had a great piece this week from our editor-at-large, David Crane, obviously known as the former CEO of NRG Energy and now the senior operating executive at Pegasus Capital Advisors. His column this week was, Are We Nearing an Energy Trumpocalypse? So obviously a provocative headline, Joel, I know we're used to those now, so that's good. But this piece I thought was really great and that it was grounded very much in history. So David, the lead of the piece actually is David thinking back on the 1970s, the 1973 Arab oil embargo and the Iranian revolution-induced 1979 oil crisis. Yeah, I think what he's looking at is the different scenarios where we could, in fact, be headed to another significant energy crisis. I mean, just for example, you know, we've we're, we've taken on Mexico, which is one of our sources of oil. Uh, we're taking on on China, uh, which um, we will be competing with for oil, but um, uh, we could be engaging in a trade war with uh, our relations in the in the Middle East and the Muslim world. Certainly aren't. <laughs> Uh, aren't doing very well right now. 
And, um, you know, what if Saudi Arabia becomes part of that Muslim travel ban? So there is this scenario where we could find ourselves um, with just enough of an energy embargo or energy uh, cutbacks, even though we're producing so much more in the United States than we did back in the mid-70s, the first time we had a Middle East oil embargo. Um, and also just it, it pointing out that our, our four biggest oil exporters to the United States are Nigeria, which is Islamic, Venezuela, which is not our friend, Mexico, which we, we know is you know, about to have a wall perhaps, and Canada, which is okay, one, one out of five isn't bad aside from Saudi Arabia. So this is really interesting, and we're, we, nobody's talked about this before. I haven't seen any articles about this, and it's worth paying attention to. Definitely. And this piece is already ginning up a fair number of comments online, people sort of saying, and how do Trump's personal business interests come into play? Since obviously Saudi Arabia is a place where it's been documented that during the campaign, new companies were set up. So all kinds of moving parts here. But Joel, we were also talking about sort of the broader political landscape this week before we started recording, which is a piece you mentioned in the New York Times that lays out sort of a conservative case for climate action. Yeah, this was really interesting, and I did not see this coming. On Wednesday, the New York Times ran an op-ed called A Conservative Case for Climate Action. Uh, and this was written by uh, uh, Martin Feldstein, who uh, was chairman of the Council on Economic Advisors under Ronald Reagan, and uh, similar chairman, Greg Mankiw, under George Bush, and um, Ted Halstead, who's the founder and chief executive of something called the Climate Leadership Council, that council uh, issued a report on on Wednesday that laid out, you know, that this may be the right moment, and you know, suspend critical disbelief for a second uh, to lay out uh, for the federal government, the Trump administration in particular, to lay out a plan uh, for climate change that actually could accomplish a lot of what. Uh, the Republicans want to do, which is basically a plan for carbon pricing that promotes American jobs, uh, promotes American competitiveness, punishes free riding by other nations. Uh, there's a, whole, a number of components that uh, import and export uh, taxes and credits, and it sends money back to American families. In fact, the family of four would, would get about $2,000 of, of dividend checks in the first year, and as the tax rate rose over time, to reduce emissions, so would those dividend payments. Anyway, I really encourage you to check out this article um, because it's it's kind of sane, and I know that sane isn't necessarily the flavor of the month in Washington, D.C., but this is just a really interesting intellectual exercise, if nothing else, that uh, you know we hadn't been thinking about in terms of how we might move things forward, and you never know what's going to happen. I certainly have gone well beyond trying to predict the news these days. Definitely. And while there is plenty of economic theorizing that can be done around the energy industry, another piece we ran this week looked at an economic trend that is very much here now. And that was a look at what companies from Amcor to Dow to Viola are doing now with the new plastics economy. And Joel, this is an area we've talked about quite a bit when it comes to the circular economy and thinking about sort of new, uh, hopefully, obviously, more sustainable approaches to material development and reuse. Um, but this piece really takes a look in the context of the World Economic Forum in Davos, 
um, where there was a lot of talk about sort of replacing popular packaging materials with alternatives. Yeah, this stems from a lot of the work that uh, our friends at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation have been doing as uh, really helping to look at how we don't just talk about the circular economy, but implement it. And, and it gets into um, just one of the most problematic materials in terms of uh, not just toxicity, but just waste and, and where this stuff is going and where in the oceans and the landfills and litter and everything else. And the potential, since plastic is made from, from valuable oil hydrocarbons, of how do we design plastic or redesign it in this case so that we can really keep those molecules in play. So this is about a report that came out uh, last month at the World Economic Forum in Davos, as you said, and uh, involves an initiative that in includes a number of companies from Coca-Cola and Danone, L'Oreal, Marks & Spencer, Mars, PepsiCo, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and a bunch of others, and it's starting to get serious. It's this a bandwagon that we've been talking about. I mean, I remember writing in 1991, I think the very first issue of the monthly newsletter that I used to publish called the Green Business Letter was about, there was a piece on what do we do about polystyrene peanuts in packaging? I mean, this was way before people you know, were popularly talking about that. And, uh, but we're looking at it from the business perspective of how do we replace them? What are the options? Um, you know, what's cost effective? And now we're actually 25, 27 years later starting to get to that uh, with some of the world's biggest companies that are in charge of or that have, you know, basically producing all of that, uh, like Dow, uh, starting to find a leadership role and tap the innovation that the chemical industry and others have, have long had, figure out, you know, how do you do this and how does this, how do you turn a big ship that's been producing polystyrene foam, peanuts and other things? products for a long, long time. It's really interesting to watch. Yeah. And in terms of the next step forward here, this piece points out that several companies have moved to phase out the use of EPS foam following the passage of bans and other restrictions in more than 100 U.S. cities. At least eight different countries have also banned some form of that material. Um, and now the MacArthur Report is also calling for a global protocol to reduce the number of plastics in use. Um, to really focus, like you said, on, on less toxic alternatives and hopefully materials that are ultimately more recyclable. And I think it's important to know that this is being done uh, in part because of pressure from activists. And this piece that we ran is, is written by Conrad McCarran, the senior vice president of As You Sow, which is one of the groups that has been uh, working against and with companies really engaging uh, the McDonald's and Dunkin' brands, uh, the donut folks and and, and, and encouraging them in lots of different ways to phase out the use of uh, polystyrene foam for beverage cups, for example. And, um, and I, I think they have been a really positive force in all of this. Well, while we're on the subject of waste, I did actually want to bring up one other piece that we ran on the site this week, which was walking the talk with custom waste solutions for trade conferences. That was a piece by our friends over at TerraCycle, and the headline doesn't necessarily imply it. It's really sort of a, a look behind the scenes at some of the work that we do at our events. Yeah, Tom Zaki, the, this uh, iconic and iconoclastic CEO and founder of TerraCycle, um, is, wrote a piece about you know, how conference organizers 
are, are finally, finally finding ways to deal with some of the large amounts of solid waste. And it's not the newest story. This has been going on for a while, uh, but, but it's actually starting to not only just, you know, reduce and, but, and, but also find ways to close the loop in ways they hadn't before. Um, and yes, as you note, uh, TerraCycle has, is, is partnering with GreenBiz for next week's GreenBiz 17 conference, part of our zero waste efforts, how we divert things from landfill by repurposing typically non-recyclable and non-compostable material. Um, and I think it's, it, you know, this is something, in fact, we're seeing uh, a new movement. Again, this is one of those stories that goes back a quarter century, but we're starting to see a new movement around greener meetings and, and, and new innovative efforts brought about in part by technology and part by sort of circular economy know-how to cut out so much of the waste that we've been seeing, uh, not just with uh, coffee cups, not just with the paper and programs, but also the exhibitors and, and everything else behind the scenes. So uh, check out Tom's piece because that's uh, – uh, not just something that uh, we're doing in, in Phoenix next week, but I think is coming soon to a conference near you. So we mentioned earlier in the show that we'd be diving a little bit deeper into climate finance this show. And joining us now to talk big banks and risk is our intrepid North Carolina-based reporter, Keith Larson. How's it going, Keith? It's good. How are you, Lauren? Good, good. So and these are topics you've written about before, obviously, within the realm of finance and how it all relates to climate change. You've written about stranded assets, this idea of what sort of happens to fossil fuel assets over time. And there's the bigger picture um, with just sort of climate risk generally. So what was your latest article focused on? My latest article is focused on how banks are assessing climate risk and about how banks are starting to do environmental stress tests, which is similar to what banks have done uh, previously where they've stress tested to see if they have enough capital to withstand, um, you know, adverse situations. Uh, but now they're starting to do this with things like climate change. And so it's, it's kind of interesting, and, and banks are starting to kind of move forward and do, do a better job than, than what they've done previously. So what kind of banks are we talking about? And can you elaborate sort of on what that stress testing entails? Yeah, so bank, uh, I mean, pretty much all banks, um, but big banks like Goldman Sachs, uh, UBS, J.P. Morgan Chase, um, are all kind of pushing the needle when it comes to climate change, uh, assessing climate change risk. But environmental stress testing is just uh, banks are now starting to look at their credit portfolios for climate risks, such as droughts or climate change or even a utility's power generation portfolio. They're looking at, at, at those risks. Hmm, that's pretty interesting. And then when it comes, I mentioned stranded assets earlier. Do you mind giving us a quick definition there and sort of what, what's new there? Yeah, so stranded assets are just assets that are suffering from unanticipated or premature write-downs. Um, and when it comes to fossil fuels, you know, these are due, you're looking at coal, 
or oil. Um, you know, it's there's there's a threat that these are going to suffer write downs due to either renewables or regulatory risks as uh, we get serious about meaning it's uh, limiting the Earth's temperature from rising two degrees. And what are banks doing to counteract that? Because obviously now the regulatory conversation in the U.S. has, has definitely shifted when it comes to things like oil pipelines and sort of the potential value of fossil fuel assets. So is, is, is this sort of the political landscape figure into this at all, or sort of mm-hmm. how are you seeing financial institutions look at these things now? Well, banks are definitely talking about this more, uh, especially with coal, it seems like. Uh, coal, um, regardless of the federal policies around coal, the, the economics of coal are, seem to remain the same. So banks are, seem to be talking about this issue more and they're, they're looking at, uh, stranded assets. And then there are also, there's also the other side of where they're seeing opportunities in, in, um, land, green lending and green bonds and financing green projects. So they're, you know, they're kind of seeing an opportunity along with the risk aspect. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about, sort of new opportunities for lending. I don't know if it would be related to sort of large-scale renewable energy products, or you mentioned green bonds. Can you just give us a little bit of the lay of the land in terms of some of the climate-related financial products that are hitting the the market now? Yeah, well, there are green bonds, which are uh, financial instruments used to fund renewable energy or energy efficiency projects. And those have been around for a while, but they've kind of been gaining speed. And there's a report by Moody's not too long ago that the green bond issuances will increase over $200 billion uh, in 2017 if they grow grow at the rate of 2016. Um, And then there's uh, just general lending for green energy projects and and energy efficiency projects, which is another side that I, is equally important, is the uh, energy efficiency along with the renewables. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about, I think it's sort of a perennial issue when we talk about uh, finance and reporting, is this whole issue of disclosure, sort of uh, how material are risks related to climate to, to businesses in different industries. So how are you seeing the financial industry think about the whole area of disclosure? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So back in 2010, you know, the SEC issued an interpretive guidance on climate disclosure where companies were asked to disclose uh, financial risks associated with climate change. But there really hasn't been much enforcement from the SEC on this issue. And it seems unlikely or at definitely uncertain how the this will be enforced under the Trump administration. And so... Uh, Banks are starting to voluntarily disclose this information with the help of the uh, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is led by Mark Carney, who's the governor of the Bank of England, as well as Michael Bloomberg. And uh, they recently released guidance on this, uh, on how companies can, can better integrate this information into their financial reports. So they seem to be doing a lot better job, and it seems, it looks like it is going to take a kind of a top-down approach where the big banks are going to have to um, start voluntarily disclosing this information for it to, to catch on. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was going to say. So at this point, we're still talking about voluntary disclosure in the question longer term, sort of how many people adopt that, whether at some point it becomes more standard practice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's it's becoming more of a demand for investors who are saying, look, we really need this information. It's not just some extraneous information that's, that's nice to have. It's We really need to have this information to assess uh, 
our financial risks. And um, I know we've talked about this before at GreenBiz, but this is becoming an issue of is this a fiduciary responsibility for banks to it, disclose this information? Mm-hmm. A fiduciary responsibility in terms of sort of the long-term proposition for shareholders. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, banks have a responsibility to their shareholders to uh, make make them aware of this information, and it's, you know, within their goal to, to do that. All right, well, lots of interesting stuff going on when it comes to money and climate risk. Reporter Keith Larson, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This week, Green Biz Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel talked to the new CEO and President of the United States Green Building Council, Mahesh Ramanujan. A little bit of a mouthful, but we'll all learn how to say that. Um, and here to talk about it is Elsa. Hey, Elsa. Hi, Joel. So, uh, Mahesh is replacing uh, Rick Pedrizzi, who uh, left in, I think, November, December, after uh, he'd been head of the USGBC pretty much since it began. Not quite. There was someone before him and Christine Irvin, but 1993, that's a pretty good run. And now uh, that was through the whole growth and birth and growth of of the lead green building system and green build, this mammoth conference. And now there's Mahesh. So uh, what did you learn about Mahesh and, and where this uh, organization is going? Great. Well, the USGBC is at a crossroads. It's had phenomenal success, as you know, with the lead um, leadership in energy and environmental design ratings. Um, Mahesh is really looking to take the USGBC to the next level globally, and he he wants to focus on the human aspect and bring technology, data, transparency um, to a, a place where and all of the tools that are available now can help people around the world. Um, he wants to expand the organization into some of the BRIC uh, regions, so you know, Brazil possibly somewhere in Africa this year. Um, he also talked about the importance of the United Nations Global Goals, otherwise known as the SDGs. So he was talking about Amazon being a metaphor for what he hopes USGBC to grow into somewhat um, kind of interesting. He really takes a cue from the tech industry and his personal heroes include Steve Jobs. Well, that's interesting. So how do you think Mahesh is going to be different from uh, Rick Pedrizzi in just in terms of leadership and where he wants to take the organization? He's also, um, just like Rick Pedrizzi, he's very well-liked and he's personable and super passionate about green building um, and the potential for for greener cities as well. But um, he's he's somewhat of an insider. You know, he's been with the USGBC, um, really uh, the GBCI, the Green Building Certification Institute, which administers the lead rating for for many years now. So um, he knows the ins and outs of the world of USGBC and lead and 
and beyond. Um, but he was saying, um, because leadership will be different because he wants to be, he said, the Amazon that actually takes this to scale at an accelerated pace and takes this to the area of perfection, efficiency. Um, so he is, is not a founding leader, but he's, he's the next level person who is hoping to take it to the next level, even, even as the Green Bills um, conference has sort of flattened out in, in attendance somewhat in recent years. Um, he's seeing that the growth now can be worldwide. I asked him to tell me a little bit more about the role of technology and the Amazon metaphor, and here's what he had to say. Now, I see myself playing the role of a professional CEO by actually institutionalizing the founder's vision. So what do I mean by that? Is that I want to be the Amazon that actually takes this to scale, takes this to an accelerated pace, takes this to the area of perfection, efficiency, and effectiveness, and most importantly, lead from my core competencies, which are technology, strategy, and most importantly, the, the data analytics capabilities on top of my business experience. So those are my unique skill sets, and I'm a strategic thinker, but I'm also a firm believer that uh, you rely on great people, you pick a great team, and then you inspire them, and you push them to go further and beyond than their usual potential so that the organization can tap into the larger impact we can create in the marketplace. Clearly, data and technology is what we will lead with because, you know, it's the bottom line is when we say data, let's, let's put a layman con context onto it, which is transparency, right? Transparency, good data drive good decisions, good data drive good inspiration, and also data also is about transparency. So that's the larger frontier we will absolutely focus on. But then the second part of the conversation is about uh, looking at the vision of a sustainable future for all. So... As we all know that when you look at climate change uh, or when you look at all the other challenges that's happening with the environment, whether you're a believer or not, it doesn't matter. But what you see is two simple facts. When you walk near DuPont Circle in D.C., particularly last week, you would see thousands of homeless people trying to find a home between probably evening 9 o'clock to the morning 6 o'clock. And in a minus 18, when you look at that, who is paying for it? The poor is paying for it. Then, you know, I come from India, so you can understand. I am I can relate to that subject of poverty, doing more with less, resourcefulness, what happens if you drive environmental degradation, what poverty looks like. The big the big issues are always on my mind. But then when you go to Chicago, and you would have heard it five times, right? People either are dying because of extreme cold, or in summer, they're dying because of extreme summer. Because the, the climate itself is, is becoming a, such a big issue. So fundamental needs of a human being are not being addressed because of this massive resource degradation happening. And the bottom line is that the next big frontier is we have to focus on the income inequality, poverty, because the poor are just going to get poorer if you're going to plunder the wealth of this planet like this, as we are doing right now. So I would say that that's the next big frontier that I am pushing the organization to saying that at a big picture level, data, technology, mobility, data science, transparency. Then the next part is sustainable future for all. So it's no longer enough that we clock 100,000 buildings of lead of all the real estate leaders driving bigger inspirations. Great, they're doing great work. But then we also need to look at how about the downtowns, how about the Bronx, how about the homelessness, how about the people on the street, etc. So Rick Fedrizzi, when he left, he moved over to another organization to work on the well building, which is about health and wellness as well as the uh, 
environmental aspects of buildings. Uh, is that something that the USGBC will also be working on? Absolutely. Um, it was interesting um, that Mahesh's people referred to him uh, was talking a bit about health and wellness and um, how there are some studies coming out now that are linking greener buildings with health and wellness, but it's still really early days. Um, but when you have the world's population uh, uh, booming <laughs> to into the you know seven billion level, and most people are spending most of their time inside of buildings, that is is another new frontier um, that they would like to explore a little deeper. So, what can we expect next from USGBC? Do you have any hints of where the organization uh, will be going in 2017? It looks like it will be going to new locations around the globe, so watch for some announcements to come there. It looks like the USGBC will be expanding far beyond the U.S. with some announcements to come later this year about new locations around the globe, so watch for that. Great. U.S. Green Building Council coming soon to a country near you. GreenBiz Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to podcast director Soraya Melconian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll be in Phoenix next week uh, with this podcast. Uh, GreenBiz 17 is February 14th through 16th. If you haven't already, please sign up for the live stream, the free live stream, where you can watch the main stage events on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and even get some special interviews uh, from uh, the, our sidebar hosts. And you can even ask questions of some of the speakers on stage. You'll find more information about that on the homepage at greenbiz.com. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time from Phoenix, have a great day. <laughs>